So I learned how to cry and learned how to be a person again. And then I was able to have warm and vulnerable relationships with my anger rather than just always being this spiky asshole. Emotion underlies every single thing that you do, every thought, every dream, every logical idea, every bit of language, every action, every behavior, everything that you do is undergirded by emotions. So if you can key into your emotions, you got it made. Carla McLaren is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and empathy pioneer. Her lifelong work focuses on her grand unified theory of emotions, which revalues even the most quote-unquote negative emotions, and opens startling new pathways into self-awareness, effective communication, and healthy empathy. She is the founder and CEO of Emotion Dynamics LLC and the developer of the Empathy Academy online learning site. Today, Carla shares with us her experiences that led to her becoming an expert of emotions and shared with us her emotional vocabulary list, which gives us insight to our 18 different emotions, how they show up in our lives, and what they are trying to tell us. Welcome, Carla, to the third place. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging, empowering, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Carla, I could not be more elated to have you come into the third place. Thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here. So as you know, I was first introduced to your book, The Language of Emotions, by my mom, one of your super fans. Mom. And, <laughs> and you you really talk about all things emotions. You've really you've covered the art of empathy, embracing anxiety, and more. And I wanna I wanna start with what makes you so focused on emotions? Necessity. It was necessity that that had me focus on emotions. And I've told this story before, but I survived a number of years of childhood sexual assault from a neighbor. So I had some safety at home, but I was very young. I was like two and a half or three when I started. And that is when people are finding out who they are in the world, who they are as their gender, who they are in their family, who they are in the world. And so what I was learning was pretty awful. One of the many things I did to protect myself was I turned up my sensitivity. I turned up my empathy. I turned up my capacity to read social signals and emotions. And a lot of kids will do that if they are raised in violent or uh, households where the adults sort of can't be trusted. Like you have to learn how to read the hell out of the situation. And so I did. But because I didn't know how I did it, I didn't know how to turn it off. And I ended up being a very intense, rageful child, nightmares. Just everything in my life was intense. Everything. Smells were intense. Sights were intense. Uh, Emotions, I could pick them up from everybody. I ended up spending most of my young life with animals because I found their emotions much easier to work with because animals never lie about how they're feeling. They're just really clear about how they're feeling. So I found them very, very soothing. But I began to look at emotions not 
out of a sort of a curiosity, but more out of a sense of survival, that the emotions would come at me so hard. My rages would come out and my nightmares were so terrifying. And my emotions were telling me the truth about what was real in my life. They weren't fooling around. They weren't doing the wrong thing, but it sure felt like that when I was little. So learning about the emotions was sort of a lifelong way to kind of uh, save my life. After that series of, of assaults were done, I was sort of left with all of these behaviors that were really a good idea at the time, but didn't serve me in regular everyday life. What were some of those behaviors? Raging, reading mm-hmm. the hell out of people. A lot of times people just need to be left alone. It's not my business what they're doing. It is not my business. I feel like I just took that in right as you said that because, because <laughs> you know, the way that you expressed your experience, it's like you just turned the volume on like full blast. Like yeah. everything to you was like the full blast volume on your experiences and your emotions. And just yeah. as I was hearing that, I was like, whoa, like, yeah, it's even if you can, it's not up to you or it's not really even your business on many occasions. Yeah. It's just hard to turn it down. Keep your hands off of people. Yeah. Yeah. And so learning to understand emotions and learning to manage my own hypersensitivity and hyper empathy was huge. That was where I went. Yeah. And what I'm hearing too is that right now we're seems like we're talking about a negative emotion that has led to these things, but the negative emotions were trying to do something positive within you. They were trying to speak, you know, raise their voice on what your body needed, what you needed. Yeah. And What I notice, you know, in my work today, which is called dynamic emotional integration, one of the first things we say is try not to see emotions as negative or positive, but it's almost impossible because it's everything you ever have heard about emotions. Here's some good ones and here's some bad ones. Yeah, exactly. What I've noticed about the negative emotions, and I've said this before, and I'm going to put finger quotes around negative, is that they're the ones that shake things up. And the so-called positive emotions are the ones that accept the status quo. Mm. So if you need to change the status quo, you're going to need those emotions that have been relegated to the area of, that have been thrown into the shadow or, yeah. or, or put under the rug. Those are the ones you'll need. And so those were the ones I was living in. And they were trying to protect me and heal me. But I had no support, right, for feeling and, and being in those emotions. So I sort of was thrown, you know, into a boat by myself uh, to figure out what these emotions were. That reframing, I think, is just so helpful because that's exactly what we're taught is negative emotions and positive emotions versus they all are bringing value. And if you have a negative emotion, air quote, quote. yeah, Yeah. air quote, (laughs) negative emotion, we are also taught to the best thing to do is to bury it probably versus <laughs> versus like only if it's really a bad one or if it keeps coming up, then that maybe we should address it versus can we uh, address it much more early on, obviously in a, an approachable way. But if we do, then the emotion is trying to tell us to do something. And, yeah. and I love that framing that it's trying to bring awareness to something that needs to be changed. Yeah. And I think about the anger, well, the rage that I had as a little girl. Anger is always about boundaries and how people set boundaries is up to their skill set. But anger is always about boundaries. And one of the things about early childhood assault is that it strips away the boundaries of the child. 
that I mean, that's a part of the grooming that happens. Mm -hmm. So my anger and rage were there to try to give me boundaries, right? They're like, that child needs boundaries, let's go. And all it looked like was that I was kind of a super brat Mm -hmm. and an out of control kid. They thought I was brain damaged. They thought I had ADHD and I probably did. But nobody said, why does this child need that much anger? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on in this child's life? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm wondering, you know, do you have a moment that you really recognize that shift from that my emotions are trying to tell me something that it became conscious? Because clearly, I mean, when you're a kid and your yeah. brain is literally forming, I mean, there's like what you said, it was pure survival. You had no awareness. I feel like even as an yeah. adult, it's hard to know on many occasions, what our body or what our emotions are trying to teach us. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment or many moments that brought you to that where it really came into that prefrontal cortex? There were many moments when I went deep into the emotional realm and finally understood the emotions in their language. It's not unusual for children who were abused to head into depression. Right. And my first full blown suicidal urge was when I was 10. So I grew up with suicide. Wow. Suicide became my, you know, weird friend. Wow. (laughs) My weird friend. So it was going into my suicidal urge where I finally saw that was the one that led me in and helped me understand that all emotions had a purpose and all of them were valuable, including the suicidal Mm. urge, which comes forward when. The difference between who you are and who you've become is extreme and irredeemable. And only a death will fix it. The rule in DEI is this human body is off the table. And so what we do with suicide alert is turn it saying, what needs to die? What needs to get killed? And the suicide alert just say, this poverty, this loneliness, these relationships, right? It just comes out. And it doesn't have any, like, I don't know. It's not lawfully at all. No. <laughs> it's just it's just dead, flat, that. And when I could do that, then I could change my life. It was my, you know, people say, Carla, how did you get where you are? And I'm like, suicidal urge, pal. It was that. I think that the intensity at which you approach the suicidal urge by being, like, allowing it full the space to express, saying that, yes, a death needs to happen, not the death of your human body, but the death of this, this, or this, matches the intensity of the suicidal urge so that, like, I feel like there's an exchange of being seen and having the space, and that can, like, did that soften that urge then when you were able to really acknowledge, like, what death needed to ensue it healed it for that point but because i had gone through so much trauma my suicidal urge would come up but now i knew it and i knew what to do and now one of the things that they're finding in research is if you just have a larger emotional vocabulary Mm. you become better at regulating and understanding your emotions because you know what where you are and so now understanding my suicidal urge in the softest level helps me to not go as far as I did when I was younger. That's so fascinating. Like, I immediately connect to that because the logic part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain just have so much work to do to create the language. That's why we love art so much, because today's song means something different than tomorrow. And and it's like the brain is trying to give words to these emotions that are Mm -hmm. really hard to name. So to hear you say 
that one of the biggest things to help is to create avenues to communicate what the emotions are trying to say. Like to me, that's very mind blowing. It makes me think, you know, how do you create strategy around helping young kids form language mm -hmm. around what they're feeling and to try to do it kind of quickly. And, and honestly, even just saying that out loud, of course, like I'm thinking of, a, you know, I have a 18 month old at home and when he doesn't have the words, he, that's when he throws things, you know? So even <laughs> in that primal thing is like, I'm just angry. And you know, he's a great kid, but all of a sudden he throws <laughs> things. And I go, what are you trying to communicate? And that is the question I have in my mind, but that's in all phases of life. Yeah. Yeah, even I'm thinking of my toddler, too. At first, you help to identify the words, right? That's the whole thing. You're teaching them the words. You're you're just trying things on for size, and they resonate or not. Now it's like a different level where he has the more vocabulary than he did, and so he's still just as quick to that anger, too, because it's just like, no, don't you know by now what I'm feeling and thinking? And I'm like, <laughs> I, I swear I do, but I really don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Tantrums are a really important part of emotional maturity. The, the kids have to go through the tantrum stage. And there's a wonderful research on the rhythms of tantrums and going from anger to sadness. And while the child is in the anger part, like, don't try to reason with them. Just stop it. You can only really engage with a child when they're in the sadness part. Right. And that's really important because I see so many parents trying to reason with a child who's in a full tantrum. And I'm like, that's, you know, a tantrum is a sign of dysregulation. You can't regulate a child by yelling at it or, <laughs> or trying to talk it, no. you know, through something. Just make them safe while they're having the anger part. Yeah. And then when they're in the sadness part, then they will want to be held and talk about it. And it's really important also to give them anger skills when they're just really chill and to say, Yes. You know, sometimes when you're just real, like, throwing things, you know, like, what could you do instead, right? And, like, give them some ideas. Give them some different ideas. Yeah. Or what do you think you're feeling when you want to throw things? So that they begin to become articulate. Well, I think something that I feel like I'm catching up on about your journey, though, is you were so very alone, it sounds like, in a, in a lot of this. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm wondering, did you have other people involved that could in a moment where you were not in an anger state or a rage state did you ever get to a point where you were being seen that helped you down this journey especially with those suicidal urges and thoughts not really very few people could go to the depths of emotions like I could I mostly scared people wow I still do right because I can still do it yes right if it's time to go to an emotion I'm like boom I'm there we'll do it um <laughs> And I just you know, have to realize, oh, hell, I'm with the stiffs and the straights. <laughs> I got to go be with some healed trauma survivors and we can all talk and laugh about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you can't talk morbid stuff? Okay. <laughs> and find humor, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that I've even in the two short times that we've talked, there's been such a humor and lightness about you and that that that's a really important piece to where you're at now as well. I mean, wouldn't you agree that there's something about humor that is essential in emotions too? Yeah. And I noticed when you let all your emotions flow, don't uh, organize them into categories <laughs> that they all come up 
regularly. So happiness and joy and contentment come up just as often as sadness and grief and jealousy and envy and anger. None of them are like, this is the best emotion ever. So I end up being more emotionally fluid the more I welcome my emotions. It seems like, and I don't know like if this question even has an answer as much as an observation and one I'm not happy about, but it does seem like pain is just such a necessary piece of life, right? Like, I mean, I want to avoid my kid hurting his hand or falling down the stairs. And he fell down the stairs and bumped his head the other day. It's like, well, hopefully he doesn't do that again. (laughs) You know, like you have this pain moment, whether it's emotional or physical, is unfortunately so necessary for our development. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I don't like that. Let's stop that from happening. Okay, Dad, let's do it. I don't don't want to do that, but... (laughs) It's just this interesting thing. I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking failure is so important for everything you're doing. You know, to fail and fail big. Um, Michael Mead, the mythologist, he said, it is our job to be vanquished by larger and larger foes. I was like, yes. (laughs) If I'm going to fail and be vanquished, I want to go. I want to go big. I don't want to get vanquished because I didn't make shift manager at freaking McDonald's, right? I want to go, I want to go all the way. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> I love that. So, like, was there a point that anger turned? I mean, clearly, anger and all of them exist within us, but in your journey, did anger then start to transition at, into anxiety or or were they, Mm-mm. no? What, what did that look like for you? I realized that I was too hard a person. I was too sharp. And my family really enjoyed that about me. They would have parties and, and invite a blowhard. They wouldn't tell me who it was. And I would go over and just sarcastically destroy the blowhard. Oh, it was like a party game. <laughs> it's like, Carla, find the blowhard. And um, oh, my goodness. after a while, my, my shame so came up. Oh, my you know? God. So now I want to have a party. Have a party. <laughs> and invite you. Just invite someone who just, just needs somebody to take around. They need some humble pie. Some, some, some Carla it. pie. <laughs> but... um. So my shame came up and just said, Carla, is this who you want to be? And no. So I had to leave my family for a while. I had to just leave my family because I couldn't get out of it if I was going to stay with them. So I went to England and did some stuff, learned how to cry because I I thought sadness was weakness. I thought it was crying was weakness. And I hadn't cried for like 10, maybe 12 years. And uh, so I learned how to cry and learned how to be a person again. And then I was able to have warm and vulnerable relationships with my anger rather than just always being this spiky asshole. Funny Mm. as hell, okay? (laughs) But an asshole. (laughs) So... Yeah, and and it is. It's like you're you're you play a role in your family, yeah. or you're you're put in these positions so frequently that you embody it, and it becomes your truth, whether it is or it isn't. Yeah. And I think it's so important to be able to leave that in order to reemerge as a sense of to have a sense of self. Yeah. Like I think that that's even something that I'm wrestling with currently. Is like what is it? What does it look like to even have a sense of self mm-hmm. and Sounds like I really do think physical distance on many occasions can be one of many tools to developing that. Is there anything else that you can do if that if you're not able to even create that distance? Listen to your emotions. I say, if you know how you feel, you'll know who you are. 
So ask yourself how you feel, yeah. right? Yeah. I even on my website, I have like an emotion chart that you can print out. And it was like Wednesday, which emotions am I feeling? And then what do those emotions do? What's their purpose? Why would you be feeling those emotions? Yeah, we'll definitely link that chart to our show notes. Because when I heard you talk about crying, like the thought that immediately came to my mind is, it's not that these emotions are, you know, like, if you look at them in their individual space, mm -hmm. that's when we maybe find the negative, is this negative, is this positive, is this neutral. But it's more like crying is an example of a, a, a physical expression of emotion that helped unpack all of it mm -hmm. and how all of them are needed and it's necessary that they all coexist yeah. together so you leaving to work through your anger and physically leaving to england to learn how to cry it makes me think that you're processing how they all intertwine together mm -hmm. yeah we have a game a teaching game called emotion theater where we have all the emotions on a, on a table and show how they all work together. And one of the things we do with the game is like, let's take an emotion out. Oh, wow. Let's say in this family, we do not have anger, young man. So we take anger out and the person can no longer set boundaries. And the emotions, they go cattywampus. They're like uh, shame jumps forward, anxiety jumps forward. All these emotions, happiness falls back. You know, there's all these emotions trying to handle what they can do without their friend anger, whose job is to set a boundary. And all the emotions are like, shit, I don't know what to do. And then someone in the game will go get the anger card and bring it back in the game. They're like, and then everybody will just go, oh, my God, thank God. And that shows better than any lecture that I could give what it is like uh, to yeah. live without anger. I just love that someone always goes and gets it. They're like, okay, I've had enough of this nonsense. <laughs> and these might have been people who said wow. anger is the worst emotion ever, and I don't feel it, you know? That was me. <laughs> that was me. Because I I didn't really witness what I felt to be productive no. anger, and it was always to the extreme. And so to, I, like, just that game in itself, I'm like, I feel like we should have another podcast episode just about what you just I know that game what you just illustrated really cool. for us. But yeah, it's like you so easily then you're like, okay, well then this for me there was so much anger maybe that then I have a hard time being like accepting of that in my own little family yeah. that I'm creating, right? And so just even hearing that that suddenly there's a big breath of fresh air where it's like, no, all of them need to be in this home. Yeah. And that when we dispel any one of them, that's when things go out of whack and homeostasis is lost. Yeah, I mean, I'm even thinking like of the positive. What's it look like to take out the happiness card and you're never allowed to have yeah. that emotion? All of a sudden, the whole thing would fall yeah. apart. How many emotions are in that that wheel? 18. 18. Okay, used wow. to be 17, but panic needed two versions of panic. I'm like, okay, panic. I, I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I love this too, because I think that just like what you started with at the beginning, what with uh, the suicidal urges, it's almost like you were personifying it. Can you look at it as something outside of yourself for a moment so that you can have a relationship with it mm -hmm. rather than it feeling like it's within you and that, and, and I feel like even just like what you're saying with panic, of course, the nature of panic, if it was a person would want Two representations yeah. of it. And I think that that in itself is just so brilliant. Yeah, I love it. But 
I'm, I just feel so fortunate. I mean, the way I got into the study of emotions wasn't great, but I feel so fortunate that they have chosen me and I have chosen them because they are just the most brilliant things. I say to people, uh, no matter how long you live or how many books you read, you will never be as intelligent as even one human emotion. They are mm. genius when they come forward. I'm like, wow. where are we going, emotion? Is there like... You know, I think of, again, the air quote, negative emotions and the idea that we should embrace all of them, you know, that that there's health in embracing anger, there's health in embracing anxiety. Those are trying to tell us something. Is anger the hardest one to embrace or of, of those 18, what is like the hardest one to, to embrace for most people? Shame. Oh, wow. Shame yeah. and anxiety. Yeah. And panic. But a lot of people, their understanding of anxiety, when I did the book Embracing Anxiety, I asked everybody, including psychologists and psychiatrists, what is anxiety? And they were always describing panic. People didn't even know what anxiety was. So it was really interesting to talk about itself as not connected to panic. Sometimes panic and anxiety get together like they're pals, but they're not the same emotion. What is the specific difference between the two? Yeah, because I think I was immediately thinking that anxiety leads to panic or, or vice versa. But Anxiety is the emotion of motivation. It helps you get things done. It helps you gather everything you need. It's a forward-focused emotion, so it's got a lot of energy. It helps you do your tasks and hit your deadlines. So if you can't complete your tasks or meet your deadlines, something's going on with your anxiety and your motivation. Panic is the emotion that comes forward to save your life when you're literally in physical danger of being hurt or dying. Oh, okay, yeah. So if you're having anxiety and there's any sense of dread or danger, panic is there too. And maybe it's right. Maybe if you don't hit your deadline, you might lose your job, right? So panic's like, I would like to help you <laughs> because your job is your survival. But if you don't know that, then you've got this energetic emotion of anxiety looking to the future, which is in and of itself kind of ungrounding. Then you've got the powerhouse of panic, which can give you the power to fight for your freeze. You know, this is like yeah. women who are five foot two lifting a truck off of a baby's, right? This is panic. Yeah. So now you've got these two intense emotions. And if you don't know what they are or how to work with them, it's just going to feel like you're being battered. Yeah, I mean, I'm just sitting in the power of naming panic as that life-threatening yeah. thing, because then all of a sudden, if you see it, and the logic part of your brain now can name it clearly, all of a sudden, the clarity of mind of thinking about a life and death situation, you know, and seeing panic in this yeah. way as a tool, I could see it leading to much better clarity in those moments to really help guide you through that life and death situation. Yeah, we call the two together anxiety. <laughs> It's panic plus anxiety. And I've always thought, you know, I always stop and say, hey, panic, uh, hold on. Am I in physical danger of losing my life? No. So what are you here for? All right. And then panic will go, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, okay, anxiety. So what do we want to do? So is there a, a very clear, like, deciphering question for each, each emotion? Yeah. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is the right way of saying it, whether we're having a rational emotion or an irrational emotion. I mean, is that, that doesn't feel right yeah. as I say it out loud, but just in you asking panic, do it, am I in life or death? To me, that is like you having a moment of rationalizing. Well, I think, 
you know, for many centuries, we've been taught that emotions are the opposite of rationality or logic. And right. No, they're not at all. And the idea was that emotions are in the amygdala or down at the bottom parts of the, you know, the lizard brain. We don't have a lizard brain. There is no separation between logic and emotion in the brain. So that new understanding is kind of throwing people because the way that we've been taught is that emotions are always lower than your logic. And I don't know if you've ever been with a skeptical community or a bunch of philosophers, but Lord, that is just fucking tiring, right? It's like if people don't have connection to their emotions, I just want to kill myself right then. Right? <laughs> Panic's like, I don't think you should kill yourself right now. I'm like, okay. I'm like, <laughs> but there's this very much a um, hierarchy, of the self. So logic and rationality are always better than emotion. And the fact is, emotion underlies every single thing that you do, every thought, every dream, every logical idea, every bit of language, every action, every behavior, everything that you do is undergirded by emotions. So if you can key into your emotions, you got it made. Yeah, you are at the center of how you function. And so what I do with these questions and talking to the emotions is in that one was a little bit snarky, me talking to panic like that. Right. But a lot of people, the way that they've learned to use their so-called logic with their emotions is I shouldn't be angry right now. Right. It's a slappy, abusive. You're not good enough for me. Why are you feeling anxious? There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, I'll give you something to cry about. Big boys don't cry. Right. That's how we generally teach our taught to work with our emotions and um, wipe that smile off your face. So in this one, we actually talk directly to the emotion and ask questions that help the emotion do what it needs to do. So with panic, it is, am I in danger? If so, panic takes over, fight, flee, freeze, boom. No thought needed. You actually get in the way if you think when panic needs to do the thing. If the panic isn't from the present time, a lot of times it is trying to remind you of a, an unhealed trauma. It hasn't been downregulated yet. It hasn't been resolved yet. And so panic will come up and continually come up and try to get you to. So that can also feel abusive if you don't know what's happened. Yeah. And so the questions are, you know, are so where, you know, like where was the injury and what healing action do I need to take? So those are the two panics then that you were spoken Yeah, about. the panic in the moment and the panic from the past. That panic is trying to come up and say, I need help resolving this situation. I need to upload all this survival information. And we're just trapped there. We're trapped in amber. So I need your help. So but if you don't know that, it feels like you're being attacked by your own panic. Yes. It can be very yeah. real, right? Because yeah. um, like what you said, I mean, our emotions are all with us and they are trying to tell us yeah. something. So we may as well invite them to the party. I really want to ask before we wrap up, just because I've been sitting here and not really kind of clear on how shame represents. Mm -hmm. And since we brought it up, I, I will say that I think we, I'd love to go into all the emotions with you. And I think that we should have more, um, more episodes. Yeah. So, so everyone's uh, definitely tune in again, because I'm sitting here being like, okay, we've got a lot more to say here. But being that we, we brought up shame, I'd love for you to bring some texture to that too. I love that beautiful emotion and people hate it so much. Um, shame's job is to hold us to the ethics and morals we have agreed to. The work with shame is to figure out what ethics and morals we agreed to. 
So if your ethics right now is, I want to treat people well, maybe even if they don't deserve it, and you find yourself at a party going after a blowhard, your shame should say, Carla, we're not doing this anymore. And I'll go, okay, you're right. I agree. But what if one of the, the ethics and morals that you uh, uploaded at some point, Lord knows when, is no one will love you until you're perfect. And then some poor schmuck comes to love you. And your shame will go on a bender. Like it will go banana crackers. Not because shame is a problem, but because that message, that contract you signed at some point about love and perfection is literally unlivable. But your shame is like a loyal assistant. And it's like you signed that contract. You agreed to that thing. So you're not perfect. No one can love you, even if he's standing right there. Right. Nope, can't do it. So a lot of people look at the, the work that shame does when they have terrible message throughout their whole psyche. And shame just feels like a battering asshole when, in fact, it's doing exactly what we asked it to do. So there's a practice specifically for shame called burning contrast. <laughs> and... Um, uh, it's like, uh, you can't love you till you're perfect. Let me write that down and literally burn it. And my shame sees me doing that. Emotions, they speak English or whatever language you speak, but they also speak in art, in intention, in movement, in imaginal space. So I do a lot of work in imaginal so that we're not talking to emotions. We're showing emotions what we mean. So, yeah. Mm. So anger sets boundaries that are coming from the outside. So if anybody um, um, challenges you or disrespects you, your anger should come up. Shame sets boundaries from the inside. If anything you're doing is going to disrespect or cross the boundaries of another or any of your ethics and morals that you've agreed to, your shame should tell you to cut it out. And who wants to be told to stop? Nobody does, Right. So there's a way that shame sort of, yeah, it doesn't feel great. But you shouldn't feel great if you are breaking someone's boundaries. Wow. Man, we just we just so scratched <laughs> the surface. But I think I'm walking away with so many real ways to like be thinking through emotions, be thinking about my kids mm -hmm. and their emotions. So, yeah, I... Uh, where can people find your work? Um, well, first, can sure. you come on again in the future? <laughs> and then you guys heard it. In the meantime, in the She's meantime, yeah. How can we find more of your work? I'm at carlamclaren.com, and there's lots of free stuff there. And I just remembered, there's also a free emotion chart for kids. Nice. Oh wow, perfect. Um, so they can get involved, and uh, it's got little vocabulary words for them to learn so that they can start developing their emotional vocabulary. So CarlaMcLaren.com, and I also have the um, online learning site EmpathyAcademy.org, which is we do courses, uh, the people that I've trained, we do courses every month. Always something different and uh, a lot of fun. Well, there's no shortage of, of clearly of conversations to be had or stuff to teach when there's 18 emotions. And to end, can you rattle off the 18 emotions? I think that like that's a great way to, is that something you can do really easily? We, we have them in four families. The anger family is anger, shame, hatred, and apathy. The fear family is the biggest one. Fear, anxiety, confusion, 
jealousy, envy, panic, plus panic too. <laughs> and um, the happiness family, happiness, contentment, and joy. And the sadness family, sadness, grief, suicidal urge. Thank you. Wow. Each one of those should, should be a podcast episode. <laughs> I know. Each series. one. They had me do a book just on anxiety. I'm like, let's do the rest of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I was just going to ask you if what was to come, so clearly there's no shortage. I can't... First of all, thank you, Mom, again. Thanks, Mom. For introducing me to your work. I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I was introduced to your work, like, far younger. When did that book come out, The Language of Emotions? 2010. Yeah, so it was uh, when I was in college. My mom is a, a social worker in hospice, and I know that it's been really instrumental in the way that she helps uh, us as a family and others, and we're a family of, of a lot of sensitives. So I just want to thank you so much personally for your work and feel honored to have brought you onto the platform today as well. Thanks so much, Mary, and thanks, David. All right, be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation, so make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.